Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Woodzik. This is episode 103 with Damaris Webb. Damaris is a bi-coastal performer, teaching artist, and theater maker. And in my studies in contemporary performance at Nairobi University, we are currently wrapping up an intensive that Damaris brought to us, which is Contemplative Dance Deep Play Practices, which I have found to be delightful and challenging and generative and lovely and all the words. To learn more about Damaris, you're going to want to visit her website at damarisweb.com. We'll have the link in the episode description. We also talk about the Vanport Mosaic Festival. A forgotten city, Vanport was a unique sociological experiment that forever altered Oregon's racial history. The Vanport Mosaic Festival is a four-day multidisciplinary celebration commemorating the anniversary of the Vanport Flood, uniting Portland-area residents through historical and artistic tributes. Find out more at vanportmosaic.org. Everyone, enjoy episode 103 with Damaris Webb. I'm sitting here in the studio with the glamorous Damaris <laughs> Webb. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So we're about six classes into contemplative dance, deep play practices here in my first year in Naropa's MFA Contemporary Theater Program. You are also an alum of this program, and I thought we could start off by your educational journey, what first drew you to performance and the different places you've been? Well, my parents introduced me to theater from a very early age. We didn't go camping, but we went to the Oregon Shakespeare Festival every summer. Um, I mostly grew up in Portland, Oregon, although my parents worked overseas. I was actually born in Tanzania, and then we later lived in Botswana, where I made my first theatrical debut in Botswana. Um, My parents like a lot hanging out with a lot of other expatriate Peace Corps type folk uh, missed the performing arts, and so they decided to put on a show at an abandoned church, just like, you know, how you have those kind of romantic ideas in a movie. It was very much like that. And I still do not know, and now everyone has passed on from that era, but still do not know why they selected Hans Christian Andersen's The Snow Queen as the piece to do. Okay. (laughs) In Botswana, forever known by that film, The Gods Must Be Crazy. Um, and my, my mother's family comes from Finland, uh, and my father's family is African-American, Native American, here uh, from the United States. And um, my father was cast as Hans Christian Andersen, which now to me, you know, as an older person, I find ironic and interesting. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and I made my stage debut as Wanky the Robber Girl, and I think I had like two lines, and I got to have a little fake gun and a bandana. It was awesome. <laughs> and there's so little live theater in the country of Botswana at the time that we lived there that the president's wife actually came to see the performance 
And um, I remember we had to practice our bows because she had her security detail around her. And uh, we first had to bow to her separately and then bow to the audience as a whole. So if, if going to the Oregon Shakespeare Festival Association and seeing the plays down there and finally, you know, being old enough. I remember the first time, you know, I was old enough to actually attend one of the evening shows instead of being sure. with the babysitter and the importance of that. And we, we went with a group of about 200 people, too. It was a great books discussion group. So, um, you know, there was lots of academic reference and discussion as well as seeing the theater. So if that didn't impress me about how important performance was, the moment when the president's wife of Botswana came to see me as wanky robber girl, I just knew that this was <laughs> something really special. Yeah. Did it end up being a common thread for you from that point on that you had a hunger for performance yourself? Well. Like I, I'm guessing many of us may have done growing up that um, with our good friends, do, well at least I did with my girlfriends, my close girlfriends, we would you know, pretend we were Charlie's Angels or uh, pretend we were on the Merv Griffin show being interviewed, like this kind of thing, and sure. then you could say things like, well, Woodsick, <laughs> I've been waiting to say that. Um, so I, 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 it was definitely a thread of just how to be in the world and to be performative without knowing that's, you know, how I was interacting. But, you know, that, that um, I also say my name, although it does rhyme with glamorous, it also rhymes with hammerous, which <laughs> definitely was my path as a child. Mm. And then middle school came. And... My experience of middle school was, did no one read Lord of the Flies? Like, why would you put all that age group together in one place? Right. Just, yeah. So then after middle school was over um, in Portland, instead of having busing to desegregate, we had money put for magnet schools. So there was one high school that had a lot of money set up for foreign language, one for um, technical, one for mm -mm -mm, and then one for performing arts. And then there were also just neighborhood schools. And I felt that it would be horrible to continue with my cohort. Sure. <laughs> so I said to myself, which one of these things could I do? Yeah. So you went for the performing arts. I did. Jefferson High School, Portland, Oregon, where they had an amazing, there's that word, amazing program. <laughs> Really, it was incredible. We, you know, we had the chance to, now the word is devised. At the time, it was make original work, as sure. well as scripted pieces. Um, and one of the women who was a couple years ahead of me, who I highly respected as an actress, she went on to go to NYU, and she came back to visit um, our class and talk about her experiences there. And uh, she did not go, she, she, she started off at Circle in the Square and then went to the Experimental Theater Wing. And so she felt that that would be a really good match for me. And so that's how I ended up there, auditioning for NYU and the Experimental Theater Wing. Wow. What was that process of auditioning like for, like emotionally, like for you? Did you think it was going to happen because you had someone sort of 
mentoring you through or recommending it, naming right. that within you, yeah. seeing that within you? Or were you like, well, I'll try this. We'll see what happens. Right. Yeah. I auditioned for, I mean, I can't re- recall. I'm sure it has a name. And you auditioned like a, a bunch of schools. I auditioned in San Francisco. So a bunch of schools. Was Erdos happening then? I don't know. Like I don't sure. remember. I do remember that I was at a thespian conference somewhere else in Oregon, and I had to fly on a little tiny propeller aeroplane <laughs> to go to San Francisco to make the auditions. And I think it was, um, I know it was CalArts and NYU and SUNY, SUNY Purchase. Yeah, I think those were the, the, the three. So I, I mean, I didn't know, but I think things were different then too. Um, there wasn't, it wasn't, it was, it was a time where we were encouraged out of high school to go to college, but it wasn't this absolute must. Yeah. So I think things were um, a little more open, a little looser. I mean, for sure, like I, I, I was reminiscing with someone who I was at NYU with, uh, my good longtime friend Joan Bremer, and we were both at the Experimental Theater Wing at the same time together under Wendell Beaver's. Uh, leadership and um, my junior year we were in Paris and to think I mean <laughs> to think that uh, things were a lot more wide open let's let's just say to like be you know at, at 17 in New York City and you, that there's no, I mean the campus is the the East Village and you know that's your campus and to be bundled on a train from Paris to go to to the Soviet Union, just the cohort going, and I mean, I'm sure you can imagine the adventures we got into. I mean, it's just a very different time, I think, and I, I see when I come into academia, I mean, even just in the time it has been since I graduated from the MFA here in 2008 to now, um, the building is locked and the studios are locked. You know, just that kind of difference. So, um, I, I know that wasn't exactly the question you asked, but that's I love it. <laughs> it's the answer that needed to be received. I love it. I love it. Uh, can you remember that first? What memories, like snapshots, pop up of that time at NYU? Like that? Was there a moment where, you're like, your brain just kind of? unhinged or something? <laughs> I don't know. That's very, see, that's a very meandering question to ask you, but. That time, I mean, when I think of the building at 721 Broadway at Waverly Place, right, um, and NYU's, at least how, how they how they have managed to bridge the idea of the conservatory and the liberal arts education. Mm. Um, so we had studio, which so there were the different drama schools, the experimental theater wing, Circle in the Square, Lee Strasberg, Stella Adler. Um, so you, and, and I had the luck of my uh, roommates freshman and sophomore year 
one of us, I was at the Experimental Theater Wing, one was at Lee Strasberg, and one was at Stella Adler, and one was in the film school. So that was also an amazing thing to like hear their experiences and their journey in their studios. But how NYU uh, tried to bridge this idea because my 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 father, my parents were not so excited about the idea of me going to conservatory versus having a liberal arts education. So at NYU, they did you got both in a way because Monday. Uh, Wednesday, Friday, you had your studio, which would be your conservatory classes from 9 to 5, and then your rehearsal schedule, you know, for whatever you were working on, all evenings, all the time kind of thing. And then on Tuesdays and Thursdays, we had to take all the rest of our academic classes. So instead of one class a day, you know, there'd be like three classes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So... So, so, but at the same time, you know, there's the Bowery Poetry Club, there's CBGBs, there's ABC No Rio, there's all these performing, there's performing garages, Worcester Group, you know, there's all these uh, things to be involved in all these scenes, right? I mean, you're, you're 17 and you're, you're, you're trying to figure out who you are in this world and then also, you know, how, wh- what it means, right? What it means to be a performer, what, what kind of performer, I mean, I, I didn't, so the idea or the foundation of looking at making work through the lens of um, inquiry, the lens of um, not knowing, um, and that being a, 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 a realistic place to be, uh, the, the lens of the journey of an artist as um, maybe opposed to technique driven. Um, I, you know, I didn't know any better, so this is what was handed to me and I eagerly accepted the idea of practice r- rather than um, a theater. It's that really speaks to my experience because I went to um, Luther College in Decorah, Iowa, which is a theater dance department, and it was half and half traditional theater and devised works, and everyone had to take uh, contact improvisation, and you had to take movement fundamentals. It didn't matter if you were on the design track or the acting track or the directing track. And so that opens up, that's your normal, like that foundation becomes your normal, that okay, yeah, you know how to create a score and do a contact jam and run tech for a devised piece. That's your normal. That's great. And and not... The freedom of not knowing another way, (laughs) not being indoctrinated in a school of thought in terms of technique, Mm. it gives you... I mean, personally, I feel it gives it opens up something within you in terms of your creative and emotional palette. Like the default is set to openness. Yeah, that's great, yeah. That's not a question for, that's not a question for you, but just to yeah. really sound back that yeah. experience and that you. And that responsibility and that sovereignty as an artist, right? Um, this notion or for some people, a reality of waiting to be uh, cast or wondering when the next time you're going to be doing something, right? So, sure. so in 1989, when I 
came out of the experimental theater wing, there was the Cosby show, but other than that, I mean, I didn't see me anywhere right. in the pantheon of a, the commercial world or even the live you know, theater world in New York City. Um, most of the experimental groups didn't have a lot of uh, diversity as far as color or ethnicity went. Um, so feeling that I could make my own work and that that was a reasonable thing to do, which is still questionable, <laughs> was, yeah, that, that, what, that was a certain sanity and I also attribute it to me staying, yeah, me staying in this world of performance making and inquiry. Yeah. You're not doing it, you're not only limited by the structure and schedule of traditional performance and when you might fit into it. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm not casting anything, let me get together with some friends or like right. church basement whatever mm -hmm. like you have those tools at your fingertips I think mm -hmm. I want everyone to have that training yeah I want everyone so did you go right from NYU to Naropa or was there some time in between uh, there were 26 years in between what <laughs> <laughs> what were you doing it's <laughs> a good question <laughs> Did you stay in New York after yeah. graduating? Yeah, New York has that way of just kind of claiming you, claiming you, right? And living in the Lower East Side in the you know in the mid to late '80s as a theater maker was still the end of those heady days where you didn't have to have a million dollars to rent an apartment and right. space was still to be found and. I had, when I graduated, I had, um, well, I worked at a, a couple nightclubs for a little while, and then I had, um, I had a job, <laughs> I, I had a job at a clothing boutique in Soho called Victoria Falls, <laughs> and it was very, you know, high-end, really rich texture materials. And I was, uh, you know, sales girl worked on commission, right? And so I can't remember what street exactly it was on, huh. but in uh, in Soho, way in Soho, properly in Soho. And I would leave from there and go walk to rehearsals at ABC No Rio, which was in the Lower East Side. So to walk from Soho to the Lower East Side, I'd walk through Soho, touch in. Um, uh, to, um, well, Tribeca, but also now there's like this other name thing, it used to just be Little Italy, but now it's like No Lita or something like that, and then find my way in the East Village, and then finally into the Lower East Side, and each of those are just like, you know, like five blocks into the neighborhood, but they're very, you know, there's distinct difference, and to go from Soho, um, to uh, the Lower East Side where there were, you know, buildings that had been boarded up and abandoned while the owner sat on them for whatever reason and the smell of decay. That's something that I always remember, the smell of the buildings decaying and the smell of earth because of that decay and then the rats and all the other garbage yeah. and the other things like that. And um, 
that ability to, or that, that demand, not ability, you, you had to be able to meet that demand to move between these, you know, uh, worlds to, to keep yourself together. And then um, that romance of the European, uh, you know, schools of performance and how it is to be an artist in Europe and to be, yeah, and to be subsidized. You know, and I, I didn't really understand all of that part of it, that the, the money aspect was so very important to the way that they seemed to be when they lived. Uh, I mean, I, you know, we didn't, w one regret that I have is that um, NYU didn't teach us like a grant writing course. I, I right. don't know if that's more of a thing now. Um, you know, those types of things we had to discover along the way. But this, this first coming to things with this uh, outer, outer, outer image and then finding your, the inner experience of how it is, but this outer image and um, having had that opportunity to be uh, at the Experimental Theater Wing in Paris in my junior year, it was this desire. Many of uh, my cohort, we, we made a company out of that, and we wished to go back there. And uh, so then, when I was working at that little boutique in Soho, um, I was, <laughs> I haven't thought about this for a while, I was offered the opportunity to go to Paris to model. And so, oh. and so I decided that that would be how I would get there, and I would plant our flag. <laughs> Right? Well, that's not exactly what happened. But I did go back again and then try to be an artist living in Paris where I didn't, you know, really speak French but could kind of fake it and uh, be distracted by everything. You know, and this is all before the internet or any of these things where you could really, like, keep up and correspond. Sure. Um, so then I came back to New York. I was there for, I think, about six months, seven months in that world which was very interesting, to say the least. There's that word, interesting. And um, then after that, uh, in New York, I kept, my job was still being a model while, you know, and I am directing these important plays that we are, you know, making as these very important artists that are all about 22 and, you know. And, um, and then one day, I just felt too frustrated. I felt like I didn't have any clarity yeah. uh, with that. And so I quit doing that to pay my bills and um, did the temp route. That's the other route, right? You could like right. do the paralegal route. You could do the temp route. You could be um, in, in food, restaurant. And I'd done that when I worked at the nightclub. Sure. And I was not so good at that. Um, so. Uh, then that led to me, over a series of years, uh, temping at a place on Wall Street back in the late 80s, and then getting my broker's license and <laughs> working for them as management. And, How many lives yeah, have you know, lived? Lots of lives. Okay. Lots of lives. Okay. Wall Street. And then, Modeling to Wall Street. Yeah. And then after uh, five years on Wall Street, during the very heady days of lots of money and everything wide open, um, I left to do arts and education. Because <laughs> that's the, you know, that's quote, a unquote, natural progression. Yeah, that's a practical <laughs> thing for a theater yeah, major to do. If you're not going to 
do the food industry or the paralegal or the temp work. It's arts and education. Might as well teach. Yeah, yeah. So did that that originated in New York as well? The arts and education. Yeah. Yeah, I worked for other organizations doing their modality. Like, so for instance, a place that I worked at for a long time, it's a wonderful organization called Enact, which um, their basic mission is conflict resolution work through role play. Oh, wow. So I wasn't teaching my material necessarily, but I sure. was really, I did feel that I was able to bring myself to this work. And we were team teaching, which was a, a wonderful because it's a lonely and scary world in general, in New York specifically, in the South Bronx deliberately, and <laughs> to have someone to work with um, was great. And I worked with them for years, and that could be my, my job. And I, I, I want to talk about this too, because yeah, so underneath this, art making is happening, but not to pay the bills, right? And so at least having that, that feeling of a, of a sympathy between how I had to spend my time to make money and how I wanted to spend my time making art to have some sympathy together. Um, and then when my same friend Joan that I had mentioned back in our undergraduate um, was in the first year of this MFA cohort and she was living in the Bay Area at that time, she came out to visit me in New York and said, well, you should come to this program. You should come too. And Wendell's running it will be, you know, in that world again. And I was married. I had dogs. I had my life in New York. And I said, I will come out and I will visit you and I will see what that is like. And to find myself in a place that we were having the, the, the conversation, the conversation was the important part, right? I mean, you're learning different forms, maybe some new techniques or brushing up against some things, but really what I found that I was so hungry for and I don't even know that I knew it was to be in conversation with uh, people persons who were in my lineage stream to be able to, as I said earlier today, to walk into a room and take my shoes off, and that is the norm. That's the normal. Right. And to feel that, again, um, you know, I, to, and then to be able to synthesize a lot of the things that I had uh, touched into in the experimental theater wing in my undergraduate, than to be able to come back full circle to meeting a lot of the same material and a lot of the same teachers was, for me, phenomenal. I mean, this was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. Um, and this framework here of having the Dharma, of having the contemplative lens around everything, and you know, when I was an undergraduate, they were Shambhala, but they just didn't say it. So these seeds had been planted early on, you right. know, and it just felt, yeah, here, here now is when that, that, that mind-blowing, open thing. Yeah. I'm, I'm starting, I'm start, my, my mind is like unlocking itself gradually. <laughs> I've been here like, what, five weeks? Yay! Five weeks, it's happening. Five weeks in. Uh, so was it at your time 
at Naropa in the MFA program, is that when you met Barbara Dilley and started yes. learning from her? Yes. Did that start right away, or was it partway through the program? Yes, well, um, my good friend Joan Bremer, who I've mentioned a few times, um, was living in the uh, basement apartment of Barbara Dilley's home. Oh. So before <laughs> school had even started, um, I was visiting Joan, and she said, come and you will meet Barbara, I know you will like her. And when I, the first sentence out of Barbara's mouth was I, I had found an apartment that day, a house actually, that I was going to rent. And um, this was clearly a big deal, you know, to find the house that, that and I had um, three dogs and a cat that I was bringing from New York with me. <laughs> and I, you know, I, so we had to have a yard and, you know, certain things and not be like where, coyotes would eat them immediately and these types of things and so I was very excited I'd found huge yard close to school I was just so excited and the first words that I ever heard Barbara Dilley speak were oh how auspicious it's like what what was that word what (laughs) (laughs) ah so Barbara Dilley how auspicious were you taking like a standardized class with her, or did she sort of drop in, drop out? Was she the president of the university at that time? No, no. that was uh, many years before that. She was the president of the university. Um, during my time at the MFA, uh, Barbara was one of faculty. <coughs> so I can't quite recall in what doses uh, we had class with her, but she co-led the meditation practicum as well. So we had that as well as the contemplative dance practice world. And then we also uh, could audition to be in uh, a project, that year-long project that she was working on called Desolate Delight, which I did and was a part of. And that was, in some ways, a bit like Case. I mean, it was a smaller group, but it was made up of MFA and people that she had invited from the community that she had worked with before, um, including some members of faculty. So that was a really interesting um, opportunity. It was a really rich opportunity. And then that continued the next year uh, as well. And then there's also the Summer Dance Art Lab retreat uh, that happens here at Naropa that had been led by Barbara Dilley for many Years and now, uh, myself and a woman named Catherine Kaufman have uh, taken on the holding space for it, uh, at least for now. So I feel that my class, perhaps in the MFA, had some of the most amount of time with Barbara. Um, luckily for us, <laughs> she's she's just a hypnotic human being to be around that's not right that's not the word but she's mesmerizing mesmerizing yes just striking in the way that she holds herself and the way that she's communicating and you immediately feel so connected to transmitting yes Mm. yes Mm -hmm. so for those listeners who might not know what contemplative dance is Mm -hmm. how do you introduce it as a definition mm-hmm. to people who mm-hmm. are experiencing it for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, I start off by saying that it sounds very esoteric, 
But in reality, everything that we will be doing, you already know how to do. And that we are taking a specific lens to look at how we stand, walk, sit, lay down, play with each other, right? The vocabulary is very simple. There's no unknown words, but how we connect them and build them and slow down enough to look at each thing, slow motion, stillness, repetition, um, is the culture, right? So mm. I, I, contemplative dance practice is a practice and it is a form, and there are forms within the forms which I refer to as the deep play forms or the deep play continuums. So you've taught these practices in different locations mm. to different people. Mm. I am having such a profound experience of receiving it mm. and being in this group with my cohort and it builds trust in a way that some of the other classes don't. I think because we're not talking much, mm. we're just experiencing each other. And I would just love for you to speak about your process of teaching and how different groups receive it. Well, I think here, you know, at Naropa, there's already an understanding that space is a thing and it is a partner and it exists. So that's a great, you know, advantage. Um, also, here there is a clear sitting meditation practice, mm. great advantage. Um, the rooms come with zabutons and cushions. I mean, a great advantage. Um, I think that we all remember how to play on this deep level, though. And I think every community I've been to, um, even groups that oftentimes they're one-offs or maybe two or three sessions, um, sometimes they may not be any kind of mover or performer even, but uh, contemplative practitioners, right? So can come in that way too. And <coughs> noticing for myself, uh, for example, Red Square practice, um, if people are perhaps not so comfortable being in front of others. I mean, there are many people in this world who never have the uh, situation to find themselves solo standing in front of a group of people who are even well-wishing and on-looking, just looking at them. So that can uh, raise a lot of anxiety, which is um, of, of interest to notice when that anxiety rises, but sometimes maybe not the best for developing a stabilized culture to go into these practices. So then maybe we'll start with the objects as opposed to, we'll start with the allies as opposed to the people going into Red Square. <coughs> um, I find too that everyone, um, even if they're not performers, have a profound hunger to show up without the constraints of a polite society and just be seen and be yeah. themselves, and that it is a huge relief. 
and that it is a huge relief to, to feel that you can be supported uh, by this container to be however you are with whatever it is. So that's huge. Um, but thinking about your question, I also uh, one time found myself uh, at a conference where I was to teach Red Square practice, you know, 45 minutes and that's it, kind of situation in an auditorium, and went into the room. I said, you know, we need some, some open space, some big enough space. Went into the room and it had wall-to-wall -wall red carpeting. <laughs> which, which, I mean, if you don't know, uh, if the listener is not familiar with the Red Square practice, it is a practice literally of laying out red yarn to... <laughs> demarcate a space that, that we will look at the signs in. So that was a surprise. <laughs> a, a situation where rolling out the red carpet is less than desirable, <laughs> perhaps. Perhaps. So I hope I answered that question. Absolutely. I want to sort of fast forward to present day mm. and through all these lives that you've lived, cats that you've put on, mm. What is your balance throughout the year now between teaching and performing and where are you and where can people find you if they want to work with you? My, the biggest balance right now is being part of a newly formed organization called the Vanport Mosaic, uh, which is based in Portland, Oregon. And we are a collective of um, artists in different disciplines as well as academic educators. Um, who have who come together to elevate the voices or the, the the underheard voices of the stories of the Pacific Northwest? Wow! So wow. we have we have um, just recently been given some desk space at uh, the Kenton Firehouse in Portland, Oregon. So now we have offices. And our main event is we have a festival, Memorial Day weekend, which is the anniversary of the Vanport Flood, uh, which was a city, the city of Vanport in Portland, Oregon, during the Second War, which is a whole podcast in and of itself, sure. the story of Vanport. But um, it is part of our local history and national history that is often... We, is not in the dominant paradigm. Sure. So, and there are many works that are happening in real, or have happened in relationship to this story from theater, from music, from uh, other dance performance, from um, academic works, from um, gallery installations, etc. So, uh, Vanport Mosaic is a place that, in, in a way, curates and also. Um, uh, to bring together these voices to be amplified and heard, as well as supporting other grassroots efforts and communities that are disenfranchised by the dominant paradigm. Wow, wow, that's not even like, that word does not contain enough <laughs> like excitement yeah. for like learning this. And there's all, and I also uh, at B Space in Portland, Oregon, we offer I offer contemplative dance practice pod, and we meet um, for ten sessions usually on a kind of ongoing basis. So people could look at the B Space website as in to be or not to be, and they could also look at the Vanport Mosaic 
Peter.org. We'll have website. both of those links mm -hmm. in the episode description. And I will be coming back here in the end of February into March with my solo show. Okay, what's your solo show called? Um, it is called The Box Marked Black, Tales of a African-American Growing Up Mulatto with Sock Puppets. And uh, that, oh, that <laughs> dear listener, you know that I'm terrible at, you know, or I'm excellent at forgetting that this is an audio medium, but that was the sound of my jaw dropping with the <laughs> silence. Um, a company here in Boulder called Square Product is bringing it here. So. Beautiful. Well, I'm excited. I'm sad to see you go and excited for you to return. Thank you for sitting down to talk with me. This was fantastic. Thank you. I had a great time, and I've been having a great time in the MFA. Your cohort is such a treat. I'm so grateful to be able to meet this work with you guys and play in space. Thank you.